Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. As part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Street Volkswagen online at streetvw.com and First Bank Southwest online at fbsw.com. Learn more and subscribe to Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Charles D'Amico. Charles is definitely one of the most fascinating people in Amarillo. He's been a longtime supporter of this podcast, but that's not why he's on the show. I just wanted to make sure that you do know that. But I wanted to hear from Charles because of his background. He's not originally from this area and his weirdly broad career. He's the owner-operator of the Jimmy John's locations here in Amarillo, as well as in a few other local communities. But he's also a novelist and the entrepreneur behind Blue Handle Publishing and Book Puma, two businesses you've likely heard about on this show. So what in the world is a guy who's really good at making sandwiches doing also writing novels? That's a question I wanted to ask, and Charles answers that question and a lot more. So here's Charles D'Amico. Charles D'Amico, welcome to the Hamerilla Podcast. Thanks for being here. It's uh, pretty cool to be on here technically a second time. Uh, technically, I know that we've spoken uh, often in the past. I know uh, my listeners will have heard your name uh, associated with Jimmy John's or Blue Handle Publishing or any of the, the sponsorships that, that you've offered, which, of course, I appreciate. But I want to start with you like I do with every guest, and just ask how you got here, because I know you're not originally from this area. So what brought you to Amarillo? Uh, originally, uh, Jimmy John's okay. uh, got me to Amarillo. I was uh, looking for an opportunity to buy stores because I don't come from a affluent background. Uh, they had to be operating so that I could convince a bank to give me a loan. Okay. As it, opposed to like starting a correct. franchise. I had to have current cash flow. Got it. Um, it's, it's just an easier sell. And when I looked all over the country at stores for sale, I was actually looking at a store in Lubbock. I knew the owner out there. He owns like 40, uh, Kansas, Texas, and then randomly three in Lubbock. And he was selling one store that was closing. And I was like, I'm not buying one store. And he was selling it for a dollar. It was a pretty good deal. <laughs> that's um, a fairly good deal. But uh, I was like, I'm not going to buy that one store um, while you have these other stores around me. And he was like, go talk to the guys in Amarillo. Not... They're not happy with corporate. Corporate's not happy with them. So I reached out when I was coming through the market and looking all over Texas, and uh, the rest is kind of history. It's a market that I could afford to live in, Mm -hmm. meaning being a broke business owner, and um, cost of living was good, especially compared to where I grew up. And I was out here one afternoon, and pretty much everybody I talked to, I would go to like a restaurant or a hotel and just have a conversation. And people were just, you could just tell instantly there was just a different vibe. Hmm. And I was like, I'm sold. How, how long had those Jimmy John's here in Amarillo been open? Only a few years. I was going to say, it, they still probably were fairly new. Saucy was, I think, only three three years old. And then Western was only like eight, okay. two years old when I got them. Yeah. So when did, when did you take ownership of those? 2016. 2016. All right. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, Coming from someplace else, where are you originally from? Detroit, Michigan. All right. Yeah. About 10 miles northeast of downtown. Spend your whole life there Yeah, coming here? Born and raised there. Uh, went to school in Muncie, Indiana for college, Ball State, uh, home of the Fighting David Lettermans. Uh, that's <laughs> the most popular person anyone's ever heard yeah. of went to Ball State. 
Um, when he was really big, he used to joke that the stadium was named after him, which it wasn't. But he's like, who's going to check? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he did have a really cool multimedia school for um, TV and radio, mm-hmm. and he had a scholarship, but you had to have a C average to get it. Really? Yeah. Targeted <laughs> yeah. students who were probably like him, yeah. I guess. I majored in criminology and psychology there. Okay. Um, and then when I graduated and moved home, ended up in Ohio for about a year, and, which is where I met my wife. Moved back home to Michigan, got a job at a Jimmy John's franchise, worked there for eight years, and then... She told me she was going to be pregnant with our now daughter, mm-hmm. and I got tired of working for people that didn't treat their staff right. Okay. Were you like in a management role there? Yeah, or? I was an area manager and director of operations. Okay. So I ran his whole company. The nicest way of putting it was he was a great person to hang out with. All right. And we'll just leave it That's at that. That's not always... Uh, yeah. Leadership sometimes involves more than... Exactly. More than to have a beer with a guy. Exactly. Scenario. And um, the whole family was that way. They were nice people to hang out with. They were just horrible to work for. And I, I just got exhausted about mm-hmm. it. And... I had a ton of people offer me jobs for less money, and so I started a consulting company. That's where the name Blue Rock came from. Okay. And so I called them all up and said, hey, you all want to pay me about 30% what you offered me as a consultant to fix what you need? And they're like, yeah. So we don't have to pay you full time. We don't have right. to pay you benefits, and you're going to help us? I was like, yeah. And then I still realized I was making money for people who still didn't treat their staff right. And that was still in the restaurant world? I mean, still, what you were... Most of them were restaurants. Some were heating and cooling. Okay. Um, so it was all kind of connected, though. So, like, they saw who I worked for, and they're like, dude, come work for me. Hmm. You know, because they saw I was talented at whatever I would do. And I was like, man, I got to get out of this. I got to find a way to do it. For... I was like, if all these people that I am helping have found a way to be an, a business owner, yeah. I can figure this out. Because <laughs> they, they thought you were the smart guy. Right. right. And I'm like, I got to figure this out. And I did. It was a really hard process, but I did. And now, almost six years later, we own seven Jimmy John's, uh, three here in Amarillo, two in Lubbock, and two in Santa Fe. Okay. And tell me a little bit. I mean, there's a lot of people who have worked in the, the restaurant world. Tell me a little bit, since you were in a management position and now you're in an ownership position, like what are the big differences in those two things Like it, within the, the Jimmy Jones world, let's say? Well, I tell people the biggest difference is when they say, oh, you're the boss, man, I try to say no. The customer is always the boss mm-hmm. because without customers, you, you don't have a business or starters. I was like, I'm just a bill payer. I'm the guy who has to carry the stress. Of, yeah. of keeping it open, right? I'm I'm the person everybody blames. Like that's the hat that changes, right? right. Like I remember the first the buck day, stops with you. You can't. The manager can always say, "Well, the owner," you know. And easiest way to explain it is like the first two three days we were owners. Big old Cisco truck pulls up in front of our store. I'm like really excited. I'm an owner. Here's my first truck that I'm technically gonna have to pay for in mm-hmm. seven days, and all of our chips are under pallets of potatoes and onions smashed. And I'm like. Well, I'm going to refuse this truck. Like, I'm not going to pay for this. And uh, like two days later, mayo hits the ground. A bunch of bugs come out. And I'm like, all right, time to call the, you know. Wow. So all this, where normally you're like, my job is now call somebody else. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm the guy. You've got to solve the problem. Right. And then, you know, state of Texas calls. Hey, this license isn't done right. Like, okay. So you're just the, you're now the responsible person to deal with all these. There is nobody else to call anymore. And at the end of the day, you have to set the tone, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what I always tell people is whether you're a business owner or a leader, you know, it's your job to set the tone and you can blame the owner, but if you're in a leadership position, you could just as easily set the tone regardless of what their tone is. Because that's what I did for years is I buffered a negative tone. Right, right. 
which was very exhausting. So I, I would assume that given your consulting and your experience, you could have, if you wanted to own a restaurant or a franchise, it could have been a lot of different things. Correct. Why did you stay with Jimmy John's? I jokingly tell people that Jordan had to fade away and I can make sandwiches. All right. Um, it's a humble brag, but I'm really good at it. NBA level yeah. sandwich maker. Yeah, I really am. Like, I've had customers just watch. They'll, I mean, I'm really, really, I don't know why, but I am crazy fast at this. I can open a store in about 40 minutes, and it takes most people two hours. Hmm. I can make a $100 order by myself in about 15 minutes, or it takes somebody else an hour. I'm, I've been doing this for a while, but I'm also just yeah, really fast. Find what you're good at. This is apparently my gift. Um, my parents were teachers. So that part of restaurants and low level, meaning like entry level minimum wage is my favorite part of Mm. fast food or quick service. I love taking an unskilled worker, 16 to 18 year old kid with no direction and coaching them, Mm. which most people hate. Yeah. That's my favorite part of what I do. Okay. I love when they quit and then they go to the real world and they come back and they go, can I come back? Yeah. I've seen how everybody else treats us. Can, Can I come back? I just have one coming back actually today. They've been gone for like four months. And they've been working at a couple other restaurants. And they started with me. They were 15. Worked till they were 18. And they got a little arrogant is a nice way of putting it. And then they went and worked at a couple different places. And they're like, they came back hat in hand. They're like, can I come back now? And I was like, heck yeah. Because now you're going to be really open to the coaching I've been giving you. Because you're seeing that nobody else even coaches. Like, I let you make a mistake. Because when you make a mistake, you get a pit in your stomach, and you don't want to repeat that mistake. I don't get mad. Sometimes I laugh. I go, you're going to do that again, are you? <laughs> like, but I I love it. I love coaching people. Hmm. Um, it is hard and it is exhausting. But, man, like, I got a kid for me right now. Works at my Sansi store. Just bought a house. Wow. Doesn't even have a GED. You know how cool that is? That, yeah, yeah. Like, that's, I mean, that's life-changing. Yeah, that pays for itself tenfold. One of the things that, I mean, that I've talked about in in the sponsor ads is that, you know, people look at the Jimmy John's name and they think, oh, there's a big national chain, you know, whatever. People have feelings about that compared to, you know, a, a mom and pop restaurant Correct. in Amarillo. Um, and, and I talk about the fact that the person who owns and manages those <laughs> restaurants is an Amarillo guy. And so it is a local business. And I wonder if you could talk about that you know, maybe challenge some of that misconceptions or, or talk about the role that, you know, that Jimmy John's plays in the restaurant world here. Well, it's not just Jimmy John's. I think it's franchises in general. People okay. don't realize, like, there's uh, that new place, The Catch. Yeah. Uh, I got to meet over one 45th. of the... Got to meet one of the operators over there. Um, the franchise model is essentially saying, hey, I'm going to give this brand anywhere from 8 to $0.12 cents on the dollar to help me market operations, price protection. Mm-hmm. For example, if it legitimizes I, you. I mean, as a as a right out the gate, I mean, right? People know it, but not just that. For example, if I go buy a case of mayo at Sam's Club, it's probably like one hundred forty bucks. I get it for eighty. Okay. As a small mom and pop, like that protection is huge, right? So it's it's more than what people realize when you get into the franchise model. It's not just that somebody's not going to come to Charles Sandwich Shop. It's all the other things that come with it. Um, but you are a local person, right? Right. You know. I'm hiring local people. I live locally. I pay local taxes. I, you know, um, the only difference is I also, on top of that, I'm sending 10% of my, your pay, your customer, my customer sales away. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, so when you go to that mom and pop, all that money stays. My, mine, mine goes away. 90%, man. Yeah. Um, 
But so, you make up for that. I mean, you do a lot of community work. I mean, you make a lot of donations. You've done. My grandmother told me if you can, you do. I've said it on interviews all over. She's she beat it in me as a kid. I was raised in service. Um, I won the Ozenham Award, which is a community service award, when I was in high school. And I didn't even realize that people were tracking my community service hours when I was in high school. Hmm. There was a soup kitchen between my high school and where I lived. And I lived pretty far from my high school. It was, my mom taught there was a prep school. And I realized that if I went straight home, I sat in traffic for like an hour and a half. Or I could stop at the soup kitchen and help these old nuns move a bunch of cans yeah. for an hour and then I'd only be in the car for 30 minutes. And then the traffic would ease up while you're... It's the same hour something. and a half, yeah. but I was okay. doing something. Okay. And to me, it wasn't even about necessarily helping the nuns. I was just not sitting in a car for an hour and a half. And when I got the award, I kind of told my principal that and this other... They're like, yeah, but people still don't do that community. Yeah. And I was like, okay. And it was like something crazy. Like I had 3,000 hours of community <laughs> service my senior year. Then the next closest was like 200. <laughs> What's wrong with this kid? <laughs> I was just like, I just didn't want to sit in traffic. Um, but that's just how I've always been. And that's so when we got to Amarillo, it was the same thing. I was like, with StoryBridge. Mm -hmm. Andrew was like, hey, let's do one. And I'm like, one? Let's do five. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. I've just always been that way. I was just saying, that, that's, that's related to uh, sponsorship of Little Free Libraries yeah. that you've been a part of, you and Andrew Brandt, um, through StoryBridge, which we wrote about in yep. recent Brick and Elm. Um, I, I'm interested, because you own and operate locations in Amarillo and then in Lubbock, which, you know, it's easy to compare and contrast Amarillo and Lubbock, but also Santa Fe. And that's that's an even weirder distinction. So tell me, like, what's the difference between the stores here and the other the other locations? The other have? markets? Well, during election years, it's really fun. Um, <laughs> A little bit different environment in Santa Fe <laughs> A little bit Amarillo? A little bit. Um, I've noticed it's more about, I'd say the working class is the same everywhere. Okay. Um, I, my wife's from New Orleans. Um, she lived 10 years in New Orleans, 10 years in Ohio, 10 years with me in Michigan. We joke after 10 years are we yeah. moving? I was like, I, I hope not. Cause I like it here. As often as we've lived in different places and I've seen you and your wife have traveled as much as we like to think we're different. I honestly feel like working class down, man, we are pretty much the same okay. everywhere. Um, we'll all help each other. We're all willing to give ourselves, you know what I mean? I've really been anywhere in the world. I remember my parents took me to the Bahamas when we were kids. My parents got, re when my mom got remarried, and they took us outside of like the resort. Right. And everybody over there was like the nicest people in the world. And they taught me at a young age how to see the difference. Right. And ever since then, I've always noticed that. Right. There's, and that's what I think what people get misconstrued, whether it's Lubbock or Amarillo or Santa Fe. They maybe look at the politicians or the business owners or the faces on TV, and that's who they're judging off of. Okay. They're not judging off of the 65 grand and under. People are awesome everywhere. Now, there's a slightly different level of complainer in, right. each, in each city. I'd say the complaint is a little different, but all I would say is maybe they're a little bit more detailed than Santa Fe. Okay. Tell me about the Amarillo complaint. Is, is it... What's distinctive about that? It's calm. Even the people who are angry, you can tell when they're angry, they're just, man, they're just having a bad day. Because when I reach out to them, I always tell my crew too, if they're mad about a sandwich, they're not mad about a sandwich. They just had a bad day and we made it worse. Just yeah. figure it out and fix it. You And if somebody's really irate, I always joke that in Amarillo, there's always somebody within arm's reach who's like trying to calm them down. Mm -hmm. And I've 
And I pointed out to one of my guys at corporate and they looked it up. And almost always, if there's a one-star Google review or a negative complaint, there's almost always a praise at the store on Google, Yelp, or Jimmy John's within 24 hours of the same store where I feel like... From the some, embarrassed spouse? Or, or friend who's like, <laughs> no, man, I love this place. Like, it's re- it's in, in Amarillo. It's a really Amarillo thing. That's interesting. <laughs> like, don't talk about my sandwich shop that way. <laughs> like, um, and it's not my staff. I know their customers, you know, and it's... But you can just tell it's maybe somebody having a bad day. And when I reach out to them, they're always like, hey, thank you for just talking to me. And mm-hmm. that's it. They're fine. Um, in Santa Fe, even if we try to rectify it, they it's no matter how hard we try to solve it, they don't want to hear it. And I think part of that is because there's such a huge disparity between the top and the bottom. Yeah. Okay. That there's just a gap to, to, to solve that anger. It's interesting. I don't think it's that... The people are different. I just feel like that stress just weighs on people more that it's harder. Because when I talk to people one-on-one or I meet them one-on-one, nobody's any different. I just feel like there's just a different level of frustration. Hmm. Okay, so let's let's take a hard turn from sandwiches to books. And, yes. and that's one Yeah, because those things are so related. Very related. Yeah. Um, I'm... That's one thing that I find you an interesting person because you are you make you are NBA level sandwich maker, um, but also you know you're writing all these books and you're creating this indie publishing platform and all this kind of stuff that's happening with Blue Handle and with Book Puma. Um, so tell me about how you got into that because most people wouldn't look at you and say, "Oh, there's a guy who's good at sandwiches and writing thrillers." Right. Um, but like that's that's also what you do. It's kind of this. I don't know which one's a side gig, but right. one of them is. <laughs> Nobody does. Uh, depends on the day. Um, I, I I won three awards this summer. I won two Pencraft awards for the Neil Baggio series. I uh, won a first place for Veritas, a second place for Colloquium, and then I won a finals award for Reader's Favorite for Veritas, hmm. which, according to my editorial director, Ricky, and my VP, that's a big deal. And that's Ricky Trion. Ricky Trion. Who's... Also, also an author in his own right, and, exactly. and really good at what he does. And um, so the whole idea started with, when I got into this, I wrote the first two books in my 20s. Never been a big fiction reader, mm-hmm. um, dislocated my ankle, and after about four days of video games, I was like, nope. Huh. I've always been able to write. I, I was I could write a term paper in like, like high school, two hours. College. I could write a 10-page paper, like nothing. And I was like, man, I'd, I'd love to write creatively. And my sister was like, you don't read. I was like, well, I read nonfiction. She's like, but you don't read stories. Like, you know, she's like, you read history stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but this would be fun. And she's like, yeah, good luck with that. And I wrote a book and she's still kind of salty about that. And then I wrote a second one and they were like, they should be a dude in his twenties writing two books with no direction who doesn't read fiction. Now the story was good, but they were a little, you know, execution, maybe not even that. I mean, you know, I didn't know what a comma was, you know, they were kind of some run on sentences and they were long and, I remember there was a couple chapters. And I was like, "What? What was I doing when I wrote this?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, I was single at a bar when I wrote those chapters." Yeah. Like, like you realize how much of what you're doing ends up going into the book, especially when you're young. And I waited ten years. I was like, "If I ever get the time to slow down, I want to write again." And I actually had my stores in a pretty good spot, and I was able to start writing again. And there was a period in my life before I got into Jimmy John's that I actually did ghostwriting for banks. Okay. I wrote blogs, content writing, and I had this guy who would edit it, and then it would go out all over the place. I know. I've had some weird jobs over the years. I know that world. <laughs> and, uh, 
I was like, hey, Ben, you want to just help me with this? He's like, well, I've never edited a book, but I know you're writing. So he's like, yeah, I'll help, you know. He's like, how much are you paying? He's like, yeah, I need the money. It was around the holidays. It was end of October, right before COVID started. So he goes through Veritas and Ave Maria with me. And once I started, I couldn't stop. Hmm. So like we worked through those first two books. After those, he's like, this is over my depth. You need a real editor because you're getting a lot better at your writing. So he was like, I'd love to take your money, but it's time to go elsewhere. Okay. So I got to appreciate the yeah. honesty. And so once I started cleaning them up and I found another editor to help me, I started sending out query letters, which is the next step in anyone listening that a writer tries to find somebody to help them get yeah, traditionally Like published. an agent. Yep. And I got some really good feedback that said, these books are really good. Um, I love the hook. I love the story, but there's too much dialogue and you don't have enough dialogue tags. It, for me to get it to a big publisher, you're going to have to cut 30% of the dialogue and you have to change some formatting. Hmm. And I was like, never going to happen. And they said, why? I said, because I would never read that. And I wrote this in a specific way because I can't stand sitting down and reading the traditional format that most people are trained to write. To me, it's it's just boring. Okay. And even if the story is amazing, like it, I have to like stomach through it. So when I read a manuscript that we get as a, from a publishing company, if I can get the first through two, two to three chapters... I turn over to Ricky and Madison, and I'm like, I love this. They're like, did you finish it? I'm like, no. And then they read it, and they're like, you need to finish it. And then I'll go back and read it. And you, so far, we're batting a 1,000. And if I can get through the first chapter, they agree it's an amazing okay. book. And it's, I can read nonfiction all day long. It's just, I don't know what it is with me. My son actually has the same problem at eight. They said it's just, I guess it's to do with the way our brains are wired. So I took that feedback, and I asked one of these agents, I was like, so then what do you suggest? She said, well, you could self-publish for a couple of years, grow a big enough following, mm -hmm. then write a new series or just more in the series. And then if you have a big enough following, they can't ask you to change. Right. You build that platform and that that comes along with you. You've got and I was like, audience. she's like, do you need the money right now? I was like, well, I got a business. So no, it's not like I'm, you know, sitting in a one bedroom apartment, you know, can't feed myself. She's like, then I suggest because you, she's like, I love the book and I love, but she's like, I'm just telling you the industry, this mm -hmm. is what they're going to want. I was like, all right. I was like, well, if I'm going to learn all this myself, I don't have it in me to self-publish. I'm going to put a logo on it because I really like logos. And got, got a good one on your shirt right now. I have a problem with logos. I understand. <laughs> Hi, my name is Charles. This is Logo Anonymous. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, I was like, if I'm going to do it, but I'm going to learn to repeat it for other people. Mm -hmm. Like that was out the gate. That was the idea. And then Andrew and I, I don't even remember how I met Andrew. I really don't. It's been so long. But me and him touched paths. I think it was through Phone Medic. And he was like, man, it is really hard to get awards when you're self-published. Yeah. And he's like, are you, I have this idea. Do you want to work together? I was like, dude, I am really new at this. This is, I'm essentially self-publishing. He's like, well, let me show you what I know. And then, so I can get you so far. And then we can work together so we can help each other. So he kind of became an early teacher on what he knew. And then I continued to run with it and he became my first author that okay. I signed. And then being the kind of psycho sponge on cocaine sometimes that I can be when it comes to absorbing info, I just kept going. And um, we've butt heads, me and him, but that's because we're both passionate. And the one thing that I like about him is no matter how much we butt heads, we always will put the work first, right? which is awesome. And even now, his latest book, I think is his greatest writing ever, um, Picture Unavailable. I can't wait for next year for that one. 
I like his book, Unwinding Cable Car. If you guys haven't read it, again, little mini plug. I know he doesn't think it's his greatest. I think it's his greatest writing still. So this is how we got started. I was going to be self-published. Didn't want to just hang out as a self-published author. Thought I'd throw a logo on there. The idea of panhandle publishing mm -hmm. and then my obsession with the color blue. It's also a nickname in college. I went by blue for about five years. Blue Handle Publishing was okay. born. So Andrew becomes my first author. Then I start taking manuscripts, and I get this kid, Jordan Reed, yeah. uh, who is releasing his books next year. It's a fantasy book. We're still working on the title. Um, but the manuscript is pretty much done now, and it's oh, it's actually really good. Imagine my kind of storyline, but in a wizarding world. Okay. And it really is. The, th the thing about Jordan is it's probably some of the most original writing in that genre. Even Ricky was like, it might be hard to find an audience, but man, is it good writing. Hmm. It's like, well, then it'll fit perfect with us. <laughs> we're good at non-genre specific writing. Um, and that's kind of what we're, we're kind of going for, I think, really good authors that will probably win a bunch of awards, you know what I mean, like mm -hmm. along the way. Even Leslie Leotow, one of the authors we just announced, uh, is an award-winning playwright, um, originally from Kansas City, was living in Chicago, now she's in Nashville. And she's about to release her play again in Nashville this this next summer. Summer. Let's let's talk about that world because I, as somebody who's written a lot of books and who has done a little bit of self publishing, I, I get this question a lot, and it comes up about how the publishing world has changed. You know, back when I was starting, self publishing kind of had a stigma to it. Right. You know, you're selling books out of your car. That means you're not good enough right. to get a real publisher. Uh, and then it has changed because of Amazon and Kindle and the ease to do that and, and that indie platform. And so now you have even established authors who are sometimes self-publishing because they can get better royalties that way. Yep. You're not handing over you know, 70% or 85% of what you're writing to some corporate bookseller. But there's, there's still kind of the mindset that there are some gatekeepers that don't exist in the self-publishing world. Uh, whether it's an agent or an editor, the kind of people that come along and make a book better. Yep. And so you've kind of planted yourself in the self-publishing world as a kind of gatekeeper. Yep. And so it's this weird middle ground. And I, I just wonder if you could kind of talk about what, what you've learned in the process, like like what what's happening in publishing and, and how that works. Yeah, a lot of people are not being truthful with themselves or what's going on in the industry. Um I made friends with this guy named Scott Hatfield recently. He's the director of IPG. It's the largest book distribution company in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I asked him, I was like, well, you know, like, this is coming. What is anybody doing about it? And he's like, uh, nothing. I was like, well, that's not good. He's like, well, the problem is nobody knows how to. Right. And what, the, what I was talking about in that context was right now, most people don't know this. When a book is on the shelves at Barnes & Noble, it can be returned to the publisher if it doesn't get sold in the first 60 days. That's really weird. There's no other industry like that. Um, you, a grocery store can't return a box of cereal if they don't, they don't sell it. A record store can't return a record if they don't sell it. Right. Only in, the, in, in book publishing does this happen. And the stigma of self-publishing, I think, came from the big five publishers or previous number of publishers afraid of people kind of challenging their idea of mm -hmm. controlling this industry because it's this weird idea of you have to do it our way, right? And the self-publishing world and the small press right now still puts all the work on the author. Like if you look at even the traditional publishing world, uh, JT Ellison just talked about this at WriterFest in Nashville. 
She's like, my first advance, I used half of it to hire a PR firm and a marketing firm so that I could get another book deal. Yeah. No other industry would it be like, here, we're going to pay you to write. Oh, by the way, or like, let's say you got hired to be the vice president of a company, but then you had to use half your paycheck to pay your staff. Yeah. To keep your job. Yeah. So that you could be vice president again next year. You'd be like, why am I taking this job? Yeah. But that's welcome to the public. So these small presses are starting to kind of challenge that, you know, idea. What I was working, what I'm working on with Scott is how do we get smaller presses who can't buy 50,000 books, get it to an IPG to get distributed? How do we get this middle ground stepping stone for smaller presses to get their books distributed? And so he's actually got me in kind of on these calls with his logistics team because apparently I ask questions and come up with ideas that nobody's hmm. come up with. I've been asked, been told that forever. I don't know. I guess I just see the world a little bit differently. Um, or maybe I'm just not afraid for people to tell me I'm dumb. I guess that could be the other thing. Um, but then I counter that with, okay, but then let's try this. Yeah. Um, I'm not afraid to get to 15 solutions. In my space, I feel like a blue handle is we're going to find – if we're lucky, four to five authors a year. If we're lucky, maybe two. Book Puma was designed because we can only impact two to three authors a year if we're lucky. And that's even any small press, right? Because it's expensive. Mm -hmm. I mean, without marketing, it costs me about $5,000 an author per book. Editing, setting it up, and then just initial push. Yeah. And then you're hoping that that author has some money or some cachet to market themselves. Right. We are now building our own platform and building our own operational system when we get a new author in to train them, to coach them, to get them in a system, almost operationally designing this thing to get them in train. Like I said, I love teaching, right? To teach them, hey man, when you get in, you're, you got two years before your book's coming out. These are the things we're working on for the next two years. It's not just writing. It's about building a brand. It's yeah. about, yeah. And publishers don't do that. Small press, big, they just like, here you go. You figure it out. Yeah. And they're hoping that the average person figures it out. The scary thing is the average traditionally published book sells a thousand copies. Yeah. It, that means for every most authors who get those royalties are not even successful. Right. So the average person, so you got that million dollar million books, and then you got a bunch of zero to a hundred. Mm -hmm. And that's because people don't realize essentially the author's job is the second you get a book deal. You're going into business for yourself. Mm -hmm. All that book deal is saying is that this publisher is going to help you get it on the shelf somewhere. That's all it is. I'm trying to change that with Book Puma in that to help impact as many people along the way, whether they write for us or not. And then also the people who do write for us, edit for us, or work for us have a platform on Book Puma mm -hmm. to interact with those people okay. to grow their own brand and then also to impact more authors. Because my theory is, is the more... We impact better authors. We get better literature. The more we spread the the word, and you've probably seen it, there's no really decent centralized place to find information about writing. No, no. You can go to Reedsy and hire somebody, but if they do a bad job, you call Reedsy, they go, don't look at us. We're just a marketplace. You So there's, you can go to an editing firm and they can do a bad job, but you call them and they go, we did our job. I just actually did a video on this. I was like, I was really mad that when I paid for editing, you know, I'll put this out there. My wife knows. We just had a conversation about this. And she was like, you're an idiot. I know. So Veritas to edit top to bottom cost me about 12 grand. Okay. 
And I didn't win any awards until my team re-edited it. Hmm. I got one-star reviews off of 12 grand worth of editing. Wow. Now, here's the problem. The problem wasn't in the editing. The problem is in my ignorance. I'll own my... You've known me long enough and see me on social media. I own when I make a mistake. So traditionally, when you pay for editing, they just hand it back to you and say, here's what you need to fix. To which I said to Ricky, who has edited his whole life and is traditionally trained. That's like paying a landscaper to come over your house, giving him $300 a week to tell you what to cut. Yeah, yeah. That grass is too tall. <laughs> He's like, I never thought of it that way. I was like, what are you, what are we doing? So what we do now is we send, when everybody pays for editing, one marked up copy mm-hmm. and one clean copy with everything already changed. Yeah. And then he followed up with, and one of the others, do you know how much work that is? And I go, yeah. That's why you didn't do it. paid for it. <laughs> and I'm sitting here going, like that scene in, uh, with Mugatu in uh, Zoolander. I'm like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. I'm like, I can't be the only person that has felt this way. And when I get a, an edited manuscript they paid money for, be like, well, I got to make all the changes? <laughs> what did I just give you all this money yeah. for? Like, to tell me that it's a, I know it's wrong. That's what I said it to you for. <laughs> like, tell me. So we're we trying to find this niche. Of trying to fix as many problems as we can. Yeah. And just kind of do these ripples, right? So that eventually someone goes to their editor and be like, hey, hey, this other place is doing this. Can, can you do that? This other place is doing this. Can you do that? And I've already talked to a couple other small press publishers that are like, we're exchanging ideas. I'm like, hey, I'll, I'll teach you how I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. Can you teach me how you're doing that? And they're like, and at first they were a little standoffish. I was like, dude, there's plenty of authors for all of us, and neither one of us have enough money to take authors from each other. And they're like, fair point. And I'm just trying to get a com- people to stop getting so defensive yeah. and just work together to work for the betterment of the author is, I guess, how I'm trying to change it. So you've, you've worked with Ricky. You've worked with Andrew. Um, tell me like what you've learned about the the creative talent here in this area. I've had a lot of discussions about you know, why do we have so many weird artists here? Why do we have so many talented musicians come from here? I mean, it, it, did you have any thoughts about, you know, your world is is fiction and it's writing, but... Um, I literally bought the website Authortown USA because I have this theory that sometime in the next 10 years, I can put a billboard up and pay for the website and claim that we are Authortown USA. Hmm. I said, if Detroit can claim that it's hockey town off one championship, yeah. I'm going to claim Amarillo's other town USA. I mean, this summer we won a bunch of awards. I mean, we're not far off. We're already, I mean, that's how we started. Um, I think it's a combination of sunrises and sunsets. Not being, I'm not being facetious. What I mean is if you start your day that pretty, <laughs> it's not a horrible thing in life. Right. But you also have peace and quiet in certain aspects. You have the right amount of busy in Amarillo. If you want to be busy, you can find it. If you want to be quiet, you can find it. And I just think it's the right amount of balance that if you want to disappear, you can go 10 minutes and disappear. And if you want to be crazy busy like me, you can be crazy busy. And I think that's the reason why you can find. And I think that's kind of why Santa Fe similarly has a thing. Is you can go to Albuquerque and be super crazy, and like it's this, it's a balance. And I think the difference is Santa Fe is so expensive, right? That they're starting to, they're getting people on the tail end of their career, where Amarillo's growing them because of that natural just 
balance. It fosters creativity. The environment does, but here it's fostering it at the early stages, maybe. Well, I think you have to be able to survive. Yeah. And if a, if a kid grows up in poverty, they may not survive, right? And I feel like Amarillo is got, I don't think any town has enough community support. Let's just be honest. But I think they have enough community support and they're trying to mm-hmm. continually reinvent that support. And it's in this weird bubble that like, and there is this cool feeling to it that that's what harbors. I mean, I, I'm blessed that I get to drive in and out of the, these mountains, like where, where I go to the mountains of Santa all the time. That view is breathtaking. Um, I get to drive to Santa to Lubbock and see that sunrise and sunset all the time. We go to the canyon with our kids all the time. Like, there's so much within the reach of you, even if you don't get to drive anywhere, just walking to the edge of a street. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that I think really harbors this level. And I think it's community. I think this community empowers it and doesn't belittle it. Where I grew up in a town, don't get me wrong, Detroit is has artists, but it was just like Detroit eats the week type mentality. Yeah. And if you're growing up a kid and you're like, I'm on a paint, it's going to take a lot of work to come out of that, right? Go build a car somewhere. Right. Or, you know, go work in a steel yard. Like, there's just a specific acceptance of, okay, that's what you want to do. All right, we'll figure it out. Like, there's just something about this community that's just open of, of like, figuring it out. Amarillo is supported this week by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings in Amarillo. You know Lazy Boy is a national brand, but some of its stores are independently owned and operated, and that includes the one here in town. It's owned and operated by the Hawkins family. Almost everything they sell is American-made, and it's a lot more than just recliners. However, with the football playoffs and basketball heating up, they definitely do have recliners in stock to get you ready for those games. You can buy one today and take it home today. Visit Amarillo's locally owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings today at 3636 Sonsi. Okay, I'm back with Charles D'Amico. Uh, Charles, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes, and I, I chose this one for you, its collection includes the mounted horns of Old Blue, uh, which was Charles Goodnight's lead steer. And Old Blue would lead herds up the trail from Amarillo to Kansas City multiple times from 1877 to 1886. You can see his horns hanging on a wall at the museum. Uh, they used to hang in the J.A. Ranch office. Uh, so learn more about that at panhandleplains.org. Okay, so uh, I know we talked to each other during my COVID series, but what's one thing the pandemic in the past 18 months have revealed to you about local people? I'd say survival and community. And what I mean is the one thing I've noticed following Wes Reeves and learning the history of, he's the greatest Instagram man. I'm sorry if you're from Amarillo or the panhandle in general, um, is coming from a small town, you know, in the early 1900s to now is the survival and community, just people working to help each other. Mm -hmm. And even though people will get angry and get loud they'll eventually just put that aside for, for the most part for the betterment of the community. And that's the biggest thing I've noticed. Hmm. And you've seen that just in the sandwich, sandwich shop or in some of the, the stuff that you've done, or has it been 
perfect way I can explain it is when we gave away the free free sandwiches uh, for three months, um, we got a huge, um, ret- not just return, but we would have catering orders called in and they would say, how can we help you since you're helping the community? Okay. Which wasn't the idea. Yeah. It wasn't um, a marketing ploy. But- right. It was just trying to help. And then we would have like people in the community, like especially like down our downtown store, we'd have like one lady or one guy load like 18 kids in a car and like wedge them in so they could feed them. So like after two days, we're like, just call. We'll just have the sandwiches waiting for you. Yeah. Like that one person knew we were doing it and they were trying to feed every kid on the block. Right. And that's right. what I'm talking about. I was like, People looking out for as many people as they can. What does this area have too much of? Honestly, I don't think anything because it's growing. I know everyone's like, you have too much space. Um, I love this space. I don't think you can have too much of it. I grew up in Detroit where you can't see further than eight feet without seeing a building. Mm -hmm. Um, Even in the suburbs, like you can't, there's just, there is no horizon. And man, do I love it. And I know some people who grew up in this area are like, they want out. Anyone who says, you can't, you know, we need this or we need that, you know, and I'm like, so when's the last time you went to a professional game? Oh, okay. When's the last time you went to a major concert? Yeah. Okay. So like once every three years, you, you could still do that and plan it as a weekend trip to whichever city you want to go to. Um, so I don't, I don't think there's too much of anything here. I think it's a growing city that has this pretty cool balance of sometimes it has a little bit, sometimes it relevels out, but there's New Orleans restaurants here. My wife's from New Orleans. We love it. Yeah, yeah. What uh, what do we not have enough of? I kind of again, it kind of goes back to the same thing. <laughs> and I, I know they're weird answers to say not nothing, but I'd say I kind of touched on this earlier. I'd say community centers, but I don't think any okay. any town has enough of them. But I do feel there is a little bit of a disconnect from old Amarillo to new Amarillo. Yeah, and I think that we sometimes I say we, and I've only been here five and a half years, do a disservice to a part of the population that is trying to make an impact in that part of the city that could do a bigger impact if we supported it more. Mm. But then again, like I told you earlier, I feel like I never do enough. Yeah. Yeah. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? Home. Even when you're talking to family in Detroit or anything like that? I mean, is that- yeah. They're like, you ever going to come home? I was like, I came home once. I'm good. Hmm. I, I, this is home for me. I've never felt more comfortable, more at peace in my life than in Amarillo. And that was probably within like six months. Wow. It's, there's just something about this place that just is comfortable. Um, and it's not just cause we own businesses here. I mean, technically I own businesses in two other cities. I feel more home with the people and the community than anywhere else. Okay. I'll, I'll take Jimmy John's off the table. Uh, so other than your own, what's your favorite local restaurant? So my favorite local restaurant is Goonies downtown. Yeah. Um, I love their food. Um, I've gotten to know that guy pretty decently. My kids though, and my wife, when I'm out of town a lot, eat at Texas Roadhouse probably like twice a week. Um, but we eat at Pancake House too, a decent yeah, amount for yeah. breakfast, but we cook at home a lot. So we don't eat out a lot. We, we cook a ton. Um, cooking for me is, it's therapy. Uh, we had family in town for Thanksgiving. And like, let's go out to eat. And I was like, uh, no. Uh, she's like, you've been working. And I was like, I like to cook. Please let me cook. Yeah. And they watched me and my wife cook and clean and keep it like spotless as we did it. And she's like, oh, you, you're like really good at this. And I was like, yeah, like there's 
And you're like, you should see me make a sandwich. This is easy, right? I was like, this is this is joy to me. This isn't like I like cooking. I like especially cooking for other people. It reminds me of my grandmother who taught me how to cook. It reminds, so yeah, we go out to eat and like we like hitting our local spots, but um no to us staying at home and cooking is and cooking with my kids too all day. What's your favorite local coffee shop? I've eat, I've drank all, all of them. Like you know, Palace, uh, even with Cliffside and everything mm-hmm. we still run. But honestly, I find myself a Roasters mm-hmm. probably more than anything. Um, and I'm always like, "What black coffee? What do you got? Dealer's choice." And he's like, "Really? I'm like, whatever." I'm always I drink black coffee. I like different flavors. I'm always open to whatever they have, and they haven't steered me wrong yet. So okay. that's why I think I'll keep going back. Which one do you go to? The one on Georgia, Georgia. Yeah, uh, it's in it's on my route. It's by okay. my house. Um, but uh, and I always go in. I don't know. I've never I've never been a drive through person for coffee. I don't know why. I'm always like willing to walk in. But that's that's always an interesting thing because like Palace doesn't have drive through and like right. Cliffside is only drive through <laughs> and Roasters kind of does both. Right, and I so, still walk in. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, who is one author that you admire? Uh, it doesn't have to be local. It doesn't have to be one of yours. But uh, who's an author that that you think about? Well, I'd have to admire both the two guys I work with a little bit. Uh, it's Andrew and Ricky, um, but the most. Per- person who's influenced me the most in my own writing would be Aaron Sorkin, who's not technically okay. a writer. Well, screenwriter. He's a screenwriter, playwright. And if you read any of my books, that would make sense. You're like, well, that makes sense. Because yeah. he would write, you know, he writes these famous scenes in West Wing where they just walk in a circle, yeah. and but that's somehow... And it's all dialogue, right? And it impacts, but that's kind of, that's how I write. And um, it makes sense. And then lately, though, I've been really digesting a lot of Malcolm Gladwell. But he said something in one of his master classes really stuck with me when I was kind of dealing with growing through this. And that's while I got into his reading, which was if you ever get a one star review and it's not like, wow, the formatting, there was three blank pages in the middle of the book. He's like, you have to remember, you just didn't write their book. Mm -hmm. And he's like, and that's okay. He's like, so don't worry about it. And I was like, I can, I can learn. I can learn that. And that kind of inspired me a little bit to like, get into more and everyone's like you got to read tipping point you got to read tipping point and then once i got through tipping point it's like okay and then i just kept going yeah. into so many other books you listen to his podcast yeah revisiting his history mm-hmm. yeah it's pretty good um but i like his audiobooks too like, yeah. i just did that one on the bombing the bomber mafia when yes a, i drive a lot i, I know that i know you're a, a <laughs> podcast uh, consumer <laughs> when was the last time you visited cadillac ranch me was about two years ago all right um but my wife and kids it's like only a few months ago on the, on the way back from santa fe my kids love it. Um, but no, it was about two years ago for me. I mean, I drive by it all the time. Were, were you taking anybody to visit it or were you just going? Oh, no, I just stopped. stopped. I was like, man, because they had just gone. And I was like, I haven't seen it in a minute. It was right after they had just painted it. Someone had just okay. painted it. So I was like, oh, I'll go look because it wasn't, you know, it's usual like graffitied up. And you got to be there fast after somebody's just painted it because it yeah it changes within the hour generally. Right. And I didn't even, I didn't tag it or anything. I just honestly was just curious yeah. to see what it looked like that clean. Concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one local thing that you would want listeners to know about or to experience? To experience in Amarillo. Um, so if they're visiting, or are you talking about just locals in general? Anybody who hears this podcast, what, what do you want to put on the radar? If you haven't been to the canyon, man, go to the canyon, uh, especially sunrise or sunset. Mm-hmm. We have, my sister and her kids have come in twice now for Thanksgiving, and they literally were every day, are we going hiking? Are we going hiking? Hmm. And they are already planning their next trip to go hiking again. And her kids 
kind of hated the outdoors until we did this. Okay. And the first time they did a little bit of hiking. And then this time they let me take them on some more like deeper, higher, like nooks and crannies that they were real afraid of last year. And there's just something about that experience, especially to a kid that can just open their world and open their imagination that I think you just can't replace. Right. I agree. Charles D'Amico, thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. I appreciate the invite. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Charles for the interview. You can learn more about him and his novels at bluehandlepublishing.com or just pop into a local Jimmy John's and maybe you can see how fast he can make a sandwich. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to my sponsors, Lazy Boy Home Furnishings and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. If you like the podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a review if you're so inclined. As usual, this podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you, so thank you for listening. I also want to say thanks to the local people who support the show financially through patreon.com slash heyamorello. Hey Morello's executive producers include Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Barbara and Jim Witten, Jess Heredia, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, and Wilson Lemieux. This has been episode 231. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.